Hey everyone, welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. Our prayer is that through this message, you will find the Father, a family, and a fulfilling future. Be sure to connect with us online at Cornerstone Church Social to keep up with all things Cornerstone. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Sunday, everybody. I hope you had a good sun, like a good week. Um, I'm going to tell you why I had a good week, not that you asked, um, but I had a good week because Thursday happened, and Thursday was amazing. Uh, I went for a nice little run in the evening, came home, and then proceeded to watch my Cleveland Brownies take care of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, then Friday hit, and I got to take a nice little trip down to where I'm from uh, in Maslin. I'm a season ticket holder, uh, pridefully. I'm a proud season ticket holder of the Maslin Tigers. Got to see them win. And the last night, got to see the Buckeyes win. Oh, it's just a good week. It's just a good week. So I hope you had a good week. Uh, like Pastor Jacob said, uh, my name is Donnie. I'm the next-gen pastor here at Cornerstone. Uh, if you've ever heard me up here, you've heard me say this, and I absolutely mean it. Um, if I've not met you yet, please grab me after service. I'd love to get to know you. I'd love to hear your story, hear what God is doing in your life. I'm, I don't say that like an old lady in the South says, like, oh, bless your heart, honey. I genuinely mean it. I'm being serious. Like, I definitely want to get to know you. I want to hear your story, hear what God is doing in your life. Um, but before we get going today, we're just going to, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to soak the day in prayer. So we're going to pray before we really get going today. Um, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on us sinners. And Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, Renew us and all the world. Amen. Okay, so today we are closing out our series discussion with the devil. And throughout this series, the grounding verse has been John 8, 44. Jesus is engaging a crowd like he often did. And things kind of go, they go sideways. They start hurling false accusations at him. One of the big ones that he was an illegitimate child. You know, he was born of the Virgin Mary and so there were a lot of questions around town. Who's this guy's dad? Nobody knows. They say he was born of a virgin, and they're like, mm, don't believe it. And so they were hurling insults, saying, hey, he's an illegitimate child, and that's what they told him. And so his response to them in John 8, 44 was, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus is actually doing something really cool here. He's calling back to Genesis 3.15. Um, when, uh, after Adam and Eve fall, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, her offspring and your offspring, and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And so what Jesus is doing is he's bringing the entire biblical narrative into focus on himself, even though these people or biologically descendants of Abraham. Spiritually, they were descendants of the devil. But we have to understand, lies are the native language of the devil. Rather than seeking to destroy people's lives and societies through things that we might find in horror movies, so I think of like supernatural horror movies like uh, The Conjuring, Exorcist, uh, that's a classic, uh, then Annabelle or like Paranormal Activity, rather than those things, and then also rather than the trivial things, say after... This day, you know, after church, you're going to go to the grocery store. Well, you're on your way there. You, you get a flat tire. Oh, man, it's a bad day. Then you go to the grocery store, and oh, no, 
the PB&J that you usually make, you usually like strawberry jelly and they only have grape. Oh man. And then you get home and you go to watch your NFL team of choice and your TV doesn't work. Man, the devil's really after me today. Rather than it being horror movie stuff or trivial things like that, he often uses lies and deceptive ideas. Uh, John Mark Comer from Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, uh, he puts it this way. And if you're a part of our young adult group, uh, our young adult C group, this sounds super familiar. But John Mark Comer says, the devil's primary strategy to enslave souls and societies is lies. More specifically, it is deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Like, chew on that for a moment. He doesn't use those eccentric big things to try and lead us away from Jesus. Instead, it's deceitful ideas that then play to our disordered desires, which are then normalized in a sinful society. This is the primary way that people are led away from freedom in Jesus and are kept in slavery to sin. Um, Here's some of the lies that we've already explored uh, in this series. We've had four weeks already. Today's the fifth week. So in week one, we explored this lie. Did God really say? And this is a lie about God's goodness. It's what the serpent said to Eve in the garden. Did God really say you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? He was distorting truth. He said, no, you can eat of any, just not this one. And so what this lie says is, Is God really good? Will he really lead you to a fulfilling life? I mean, honestly, couldn't you have fulfillment outside of relationship with him? It plants seeds of doubt. Week two, we explored the lie that it's all about you. This is a lie about who we are as humans. In our secular uh, Western society, we've placed humanity at the center. We are the main character. And this plays out in a a ton of surface level ways and a ton of terrible ways too. Think about it. The fact that we have uh, same day shipping from Amazon or next day shipping from Amazon. The fact that we have drive-throughs. Or maybe you're at a restaurant and the wait staff is taking way too long with your food and you're starting to get angry because shouldn't they know you are hungry. The customer is always right because it's about you. And then week three, we um, explored this lie that God hates you. Uh, This is a lie about God's character and his nature. And so instead of saying, our God is a good father who loves us and cares for us and wants to give us a fulfilling life, this lie says, no, 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 no. God hates you. He's actually angry with you and he's waiting to hit you over the head and kick you while you're down. And then week four, which was last week, we explored the lie that you're the only one. This is similar um, to uh, week two. Week two kind of says we can become our own God. We can choose right and wrong for ourselves. Week four says you're the only one. Sure, God's redemptive work that we see in scripture, that works for most people. The cross, the resurrection, sure, sure, sure. The pinnacle moment of all of history. Yeah, that works for some people. Not for me though. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the suffering I've been through. This lie says nobody has sinned like you. Nobody has experienced suffering like you. And as Pastor Jacob said last week, and I love this line, um, you're you're special. You are. You're truly special. You're just not that special. Um, The gospel is for you. God's redemptive work is for you. Jesus works. His salvation is for you. In other words, uh, if you want to use fancy language, it's efficacious. God's redemptive work is for you. And so today we're exploring another lie. And this lie has to do with our identity. 
And when exploring ideas around who we are as people or our core identity, I actually think there's a number of lies that kind of feed off each other to build the main lie that we're exploring today. And that first lie that begins to feed off other lies is I am what I think. This was popularized by French philosopher René Descartes. In 1641, he published a work seeking to prove the existence of God. And in this work, he coined a very popular phrase that our uh, modern culture has ran with, and that is, I think, therefore I am. A better translation of that is, I think, comma, I am. For Descartes, a person's existence had much to do with their mind. For him, the mind and the soul were practically synonymous. In other words, our true self was held in here. We're thinking things on a stick, essentially, in his eyes. Our bodies are a necessary evil that hold the true self. It's almost like a case walking around with our true self. Or if you've ever seen a movie where like a character's in a big robot, the real person's in there, but it's not the robot. That's kind of how we could uh, conceptualize what he's saying. And while his intentions were good, he was a Christian philosopher who dedicated this work to Jesuit priests. There were clearly some holes he used some circular reasoning. Nevertheless, our culture has ran with this idea, I think, therefore I am. And his view of the human person, what it does is it separates body and spirit. Body bad, spirit good. And while we wouldn't necessarily say that, we live like it. Physical bad, spiritual good, as if you could separate the two. But we're not thinking things on a stick. The biblical worldview presents humans as embodied, holistic beings. To be human is to have a body. And so therefore, our identity cannot be boxed up into our mental ascent to certain ideas or what we believe, whichever, whatever that means. Rather, we're not what we think. I am not what I think. Which then feeds the lie, I am what I think, feeds off this other lie, which is I am what I do. And this is a lie that I believe for so long, if I'm being transparent. Um, who grew up playing sports of any kind? Insert whatever obscure sport in there, badminton, you know, pickleball, anything. So that's the angle I'm coming at this lie from. I grew up playing football. I played other sports, but my primary sport was football. There's a common phrase amongst football coaches at all levels from like, you know, peewee tackle football all the way through the NFL. And that is, what have you done for me lately? Um, a coach I had in high school, he also used to coach in college and he uh, would coach with a guy. He was, they were on the same staff and that guy would say, show me the bacon. I don't care where the pig's from. I don't care what its name is, the farm, what it ate. I don't even care how it was butchered or processed. Show me the bacon. Show me the finished product. What have you done for me lately? You had a great game last week. It's a new opponent. It's a new week. What have you done for me lately? Last season was record-breaking in the weight room and on the field, but what have you done for me lately? The LA Rams, they won the Super Bowl last year and then got boat raced by the Bills in week one. What have you done for me lately? And while I get what the phrase is trying to get at, it's trying to stir motivation in players and keep them away from complacency. It stokes the flames, though, of the lie that we are what we do. We are what we produce. You don't even need to be an athlete for this lie to take root. Um, think about it in the corporate world or the, work, uh, the work, workplace. I am only good as what I've contributed. What do I have to show for it? At the end of all this working, what have I done? My worth is wrapped up in my ability to perform. Do people believe I'm a hard worker? What do they think about me? And yet the biblical perspective is our identity is in who Christ is and not in our skill, not what we produce, not what we do. 
So why do I mention these two lies when they're not our focus today? It's because these two lies, they feed off of each other to build our lie today. And even the action of thinking and doing can stoke the flames of the lie that the devil uses to hold us captive. The lie that we're exploring this week is you are your past. You are your past. Um, That's also the title of the message for everyone who's taking notes. Um, This is why understanding the first two lies are important, and it's important to grasp those lies and be able to identify them. Look at it this way. What we think about God, ourselves, and the good life, it dictates what we do. What we believe about who God is, what humanity is, who we are as people, and then what the good life is, that will dictate how we live. The decisions I make, what I say yes to, what I say no to, the relationships I build, the places I go. And then what we do, remember the things we say yes to, things we say no to, choices we make, places we go, relationships we build, those things have real world consequences and implications, both good and bad. And then often, what we've done, the choices we've made, the relationships we've built, it leads us to where we are today in this very room. And so if we're wrapped up in the lies of, I am what I think, I am what I do, we will inevitably be susceptible to the lie that I am my past. We don't even need to have a notoriously rough past um, to live into this lie. Um, I know in, in our church, there's a lot of people who've made some decisions in the past that were not good at all, but thank God they found new life in Christ. You could also have a good past though and believe this lie that you are your past. Um, remember, as Jacob said last week, you're special, you are, I promise, just not that special. This lie hits everybody. Think about it this way. Uh, who grew up in an area that they currently live in? Meaning like maybe like the greater Akron area, you might've went to Akron East, but now you live by Kenmore or something like that. Or like you went to Mogador and now you live in Ellet or something like that, okay. So most of us though, if we're out of high school, we've maybe gone back to a high school reunion. We've talked with people that we went to school with. We've seen them. We at least follow some of their lives. We all know the idea of peaking in high school, don't we? I mean, it's a, it's a phenomenon that goes across the country. Everybody knows what it means to peak in high school, or maybe you peaked in college. You had joyful experiences at some point in your life, and you believed the lie that nothing could get better than what that was. So now your identity is tied to what your past was, even though you're not there anymore. And so it causes us to act, think, and live like we're still in high school, like we're still in college. We peaked there. And so there's no other next step for us. That was it. If there was a good life, it was there. So I'm gonna try and go back rather than moving forward, living in the present. We believe the lie that I am my past and that's as good as it gets and there's nothing else. Or maybe it's not something that comes from joyful memories. Um, If you grew up in the internet era like I did and you had social media at way too young of an age, um, you ever look back at your old social media posts and you're like, buddy, what were you doing? What were you wearing? Like, that's not okay. Like, I grew up, like, when I started doing social media, it was like those terrible edits in the mid-2000s with, like, the super duck lips and the whole thing. Yeah, like, what are we doing here? Um, But if you didn't grow up in the internet era, um, you at least have a yearbook, and you have pictures, and you look back and you say, why did we say yes to this outfit in the 70s? Like, why was that okay? Um, But we, that's on a surface level. But those things that we look back on, there were decisions made there. There were things that we did, and not all of them were great. And so a lot of times we can tie our identity to what we've done. We might say, I made a lot of bad decisions. How could God love me? 
Look at what I did, the destruction I made. We cringe at that because our identity is wrapped up in who we were, the things we did, our past. Or maybe it's your experiences, like um, bad academic performance. Maybe you didn't get great grades in high school. And um, somewhere along the way, you said, you know what, I'm just stupid. And you stopped applying yourself. And somewhere along the way, you tied your identity to that one report card, that one year in high school, and then you just said, you know what, I'm not good for anything. After all, I'm stupid. That's what the report card said. And then somewhere along the way, you said, there is no good life for me. The best thing I can do is just try to get by. I'm not very bright. When we live into the lie that we are our past, we allow ourselves to be robbed of what God wants to do in our present. Not only that, I would say more importantly, we effectively reject the new identity that we've been given in Christ, choosing instead to live in shackles. And so today we're diving deeper into this idea. We're going to be combating the lie, you are your past, with truth time and time again. So I'm going to lay out what we're going to do because once we get moving, man, we're just going to keep moving. So um, we're going to be reading uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. That's going to be our main passage. Um, we're going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to comb back through it. I think there's three sections to break down um, for us to really understand how to combat this lie. We are our past with truth. So is everybody ready? Thumb, thumbs up. Awesome. Awesome. So 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 11 through 21, the apostle Paul writes, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, deep breath. That was a lot. It's a beefy passage. Here's some context. What's going on? Why is he writing this? Who is he writing it to? So Paul was writing to the church that he had started in Corinth. It's a city in the Roman Empire. Uh, You can actually still see the ruins today. So he goes there. There's no Christians. He preaches the gospel. People are saved. He starts a church and then says, you guys have this handled. I'm going to go do apostle things all throughout the empire. And so he went about his way and did his Paul things. But we know from... um, what Paul's written that 2 Corinthians actually isn't the second letter that he wrote to them. There's actually multiple letters, and we don't have some of them. We know that from what he has written that he wrote 1 Corinthians after he had started the church because of problems that started to arise. You see, the Corinthians, um, they were obsessed with status. 
They were obsessed with the glitz and glamour of it all. They really liked the teachers that came in and they had the nicest clothes and they had letters of recommendation, their credentials, and then they were real smooth talk communicators, but they weren't teaching anything of value. They were actually leading the uh, Corinthian church away from Jesus. And so they loved the, the glitz and the glamour of it all. They loved societal status. And so then after these problems, and they had more, they had, you know, greed issues, sexual morality issues, it was a a terrible thing. So he then paid what he called a painful visit to them. He essentially went there and confronted them in person saying, guys, you need to get it together. Yet they didn't listen. They were like, "Mm, whatever. Um, And then after the visit, he wrote what he calls a letter of tears to them. And this is the letter that we just don't have. And so he wrote a letter of tears to them. And it was after this letter that most of the church finally turned from their sin. And so 2 Corinthians was Paul reconciling himself to them and then expressing his love for them and then calling the few that had not turned back to Jesus to come back to Jesus. So he's writing at the very end, he's saying, hey, for those of you who have not got together, get it together. And so one of the main issues that Paul is addressing in our section is the upside down nature of the cross. If you remember the Corinthians, they're obsessed with status. They liked the glitz and glamour of it all. They wanted to be known as the high class people in the town. And so that was their issue with Paul, because instead of seeking money and status from them, which he had every right to do. He started the church so he could have said, hey, I'm your spiritual father. Will you fund my ministry? He had every right to do that. But instead, he made his living through tent making, manual labor. That's not glitzy. That's not glamorous. And this was what led them to rejecting Paul and running after what Paul calls the super apostles. We actually don't know who these people were. They could have been various uh, weird um, offshoot groups like the Judaizers, the Gnostics. We don't really know. But these super apostles, they tried to flaunt their status and their wealth, and they too rejected Paul and told the Corinthians to do the same. You see, Paul's ways, they were humble, and his commitment to Christ in the face of suffering was unwavering. This is why he says that, they, that he was out of his mind, as some say, because he went through imprisonments, beatings. He uh, was stoned at one point. He was shipwrecked at one point. He was imprisoned. There's all these things happening, and nevertheless, he's unwavering. They thought this man was out of his mind. And so he's showing the Corinthians that humility, service, and suffering were the way of the cross. And since we've been given new life in Christ, we too are called to take on the way of of the life of our Lord. And so let's dive into that first section, which is 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Paul writes, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is, un, what, than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from our passage and the context of it, we can tell that the Corinthians, they were still held by uh, captive by their old framework of viewing the world. While the world elevates the prideful, the powerful, the wealthy, God elevates those who are humble and self-sacrificial. 
You see, they had been given new life in Christ. However, they continued to believe the lies of their past. So the Corinthian church, they're not dealing with the same lie of you are your past, but they indeed were believing the lies of their past. And you see, when we're captive by any lie, we become similar to the uh, Corinthians, especially when we believe the lie that we are our past. You see, when we believe the lie that we are our past, we're trapped in that same way of thinking that we had back then. We can't break free from talking like we were back then, thinking like we're back then, seeing things through the lens of whatever back then was. Because when we believe the lie that we are our past, we believe the lies of our past. In other words, when we believe the lies of the enemy, it opens us up to more lies of the enemy. And then more lies and more lies and more lies to the point where we don't even know what truth is anymore. And it's all in an effort to distract you from the truth of God, who he is, from the truth of who we are as humans, and from the truth of what the good life actually is. Think about it this way, uh, the joyful memories, like maybe like the peaked situation. You might say, oh, sure, sure, sure. You know, God was good to me then. Maybe not so much now. I liked then much better than I like now. God was good to me then. He, he, he's not really been so good to me now. Well, um, we're only as good as our, our last high mountaintop moment. And the good life was then. It's not now, and it's not even going to be ever in the future. That was my moment. Or maybe it's the poor decisions you've made. You say, sure, sure, sure. God might love some people, but there's no way he loves me after what I did. Look at all the destruction I created. There's no way God loves me. Sure, people are made in the image of God, but not me. The good life might be available to others, but I ruined my chance. I ruined it. There's no good life for me. Or maybe it's not what you've done, but things that have been done to you. You say, well, if God is good and God is loving, why did this happen? If humans are made in the image of God, why did they treat me that way? If there is a good life, why didn't I get a chance? You see, when we believe the lie that we are our past, we can't see the next step. There is no next step for us. It's, it's like um, there's a wall there. We're clouded. We can't see that God is doing something now in the present because we're stuck there. Our identity is there. The Corinthians, they were still thinking in terms of worldly status because they were still believing the lies of their past. And these lies said that the path to the good life is through climbing the societal ladder, through gaining notoriety, or in other words, through seeking to be the in crowd of society and trying to be the cool lunch table, the cool kids at the lunch table. But the truth of the gospel that Paul is presenting is that in Christ, that's when we're truly alive. The gospel reveals that the good life comes through living entirely for Christ. If you want to use the words of Paul, being out of our mind for Christ. Our life is no longer our own, but it now belongs to Jesus. I make every thought, every action, every decision, every desire bow at the feet of Jesus. I don't do what I want for the sake of Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My life is not my own. It now belongs to Jesus. And so if we are to shed the lie that we are our past, 
we must look at life with a new perspective, and that is the true perspective, which is Jesus. You see, walking in a lie, it's, it's like walking through pitch black darkness. You're kind of just trying to feel your way around. You can't see what's in front of you. Sure, you might stumble on some good things, but you will inevitably hurt yourself, and worse, you will hurt others. And so Paul invites the Corinthians, and by extension, us, to step into the light, to walk through life with the correct perspective that we find in Jesus and in the scriptures, which leads us to our second kind of section for today. It's just two verses. It's chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. As we've said, to believe the lie that we are our past is to walk in pitch black darkness. We need a new perspective. We need to step into the light. And in a profound way, this is what Paul is saying, but he goes even further. We don't just need a new perspective. This isn't um, self-help. We don't just need a new perspective. Our lives need to be holistically transformed. No longer being centered on our past, but now being centered on Christ, who he is, what he has done, what he's doing, and what he will do in the world. The only way, and I cannot emphasize that enough, the only way to break free from being shackled by our past is by stepping into new life in Christ. And so you might be saying, wow, that's awesome, cool, great, got it. How do we do that? Like, that sounds great. How do we get there? Well, Scripture gives us this answer in Acts 2, 37 through 39. It's this really unique moment in Scripture when the disciples are in the upper room. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and the Spirit is poured out. So they're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's a whole bunch of things that we don't have time to get into. But in the end, Peter goes out onto the balcony, starts proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And there's all this uh, big crowd of Jewish people who who came to Jerusalem for a festival, and they hear this and they believe it. And so that's where we pick up in Acts 2, 37 through 39. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, how do we have new life in Christ? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. You see this promise of new life. It's for you, it's for your children, and it's for all who are far off. Not some who are far off, all who are far off. New creation, freedom, it's available to you. And scripture shows us how. The people, they believed the message of the gospel. They believed the good news of Jesus. Then they repented of their sins, which just is a nice way of saying they turned away from their sins and to Jesus. They threw their sin away. They didn't keep it as a pet. They threw it away and were baptized. That's our entrance into this kingdom life of which we get to spend eternity in this lifelong journey with Jesus. But we might say, this is great, but does new creation, is that just like mean like, I don't know, like you're living without shame and regrets and you're just kind of living like a peace, cool life and it's kind of like the 2.5 kids with a white picket fence? Well, not necessarily. You see, when Jesus came, died and rose from the dead, he was launching the kingdom of God in which God is making all things new and we get to participate in it. 
He's transforming and redeeming humanity through faith in Christ, and he's also renewing the world. So by placing our faith in Jesus, we get to step into this reality. And so when Jesus comes again, we will be resurrected to live with him eternally in new creation, which scripture calls the new Jerusalem. This is the new creation of which we get to participate in now until it is fully realized. But the trouble is, is that we too often look at new creation life in Christ, our union with Jesus, as a poor remodel of a home. Think of it this way. Uh, has anybody heard of the term gentrification? Maybe give or, give or take. It, it's something that takes place in um, major cities, and it's what they do is they take low-income neighborhoods and people with a lot of money, come and buy up all the homes, do a really bad job of remodeling them, and then sell them or rent them out for crazy high prices. It's terrible. It displaces a ton of people. But think of it like this. You're in a neighborhood, and you see a condemned home. It's kind of like one of those homes that these people buy. It's boarded up. The siding's terrible. You need a whole new siding. There's holes in the ceiling. The electrical wiring isn't up to code. The piping's bad. There's water damage. The, the floorboards, they're rotting. There's holes in the wall everywhere. And you walk in and you say, man, something should really be done about this. Here's what I'll do. I'll paint the walls. I might fill in some of the holes a little bit, but not all of them. I might put like pictures over some of them. I have to put in windows because that would look too bad. And I want to be able to see outside. So I'll put in windows. Um, I'll just put linoleum over that rotting floorboard. Nobody will know. Nobody will know. And uh, let's just kind of put a tarp on the roof. I know it doesn't look good, but hey, it works. It does the job. And then we don't deal with the electrical wiring because that's expensive. And who cares about code anyway? And the water damage, I, it's fine. And then we stand in the house and we say, ah, new creation in Christ. This is awesome. It's still fundamentally the same house. There's still a ton of issues that you have not dealt with in that house. You just put a mask over it. It's still the same house that needs redone. Here's what new creation life in Christ is like. Imagine Jesus walking up to the same house in your city of choice, whatever the house looks like. And he goes, you know what? Most people would slap the condemned label on it, bulldoze it, and do something else. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it down to its foundation. And then he looks at the foundation, and he sees there's a crack in it. He goes, okay. And it wasn't even built on anything solid anyway. So he rebuilds the foundation, and that foundation is him, himself. And then he starts from the bottom up, and he starts rebuilding this house. And he's not just creating your cookie-cut cookie-cutter house, um, what some people call McMansions. Um, you know, you ever see a neighborhood where all the houses look the same? He's not doing that. He has beauty in mind. He doesn't just want it to be serviceable. He wants it to be magnificent. And so then he starts from the ground up, and he's putting beautiful art. He's putting uh, a ton of effort into every little detail. By the time the house is done, people drive by and say, whoa, that house is different. It's different from every other house in this neighborhood. Something is different about the house. That house is beautiful. That is new creation life in Christ. Is it the same house? Yes, but no. It is, but it's really not. It's new. It was a house made new. You see, when we're made new in Christ, it's similar 
When we are new, a new creation in Christ, we are no longer the same person. Am I the same person I was 12 years ago? Well, I was Donnie then, but I'm not the same person. Fundamentally, I'm different because of what Jesus has done. We are made new. Our past no longer defines us because the Son of God does. Who cares what people might have thought of me then? I've been made new. God made me new in Christ, so now I know that wasn't me. I agree. I did terrible things. I agree what people said was probably correct about me, but it's not me anymore. It doesn't define me. Jesus defines me. God has made me new in Christ. As Paul says, the old has gone. The new is here. In Jesus, we are fundamentally different. Are we the same people? Yes, but really no. So we might ask, where does this come from? So we, need to, we know we need to walk in the light. We know how to step into new creation life in Jesus. Um, but where does this come from? Is this something I have to pay for? Is this something I have to earn? What do I have to do? For that, we're gonna look at our third section, which is 18 through 21 in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, there's no amount of self-help positive self-talk, although those are important, that will free us from the lie that we are our past. There's no earning it. There's no buying it. The transformation from being shackled by the lies of the enemy to being free in Christ, it only comes from God and it is a gift. Nothing that we can earn. There's no way to earn this. There's only an invitation to a journey of eternal life with the God of the universe who loves you more than you can even comprehend. I think what Paul's explaining here is a twofold reconciliation. First, we are reconciled to God through Christ. That is the only way to step in relationship with God is through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no reconciling with God without Jesus. So that's number one. We're reconciled to God through Christ. But we also are reconciled to each other. And I think that's the one that we struggle with so much. In Christ, we no longer have enemies, only neighbors. Our past can, it can falsely tell us that other people are our enemy. They are the reason our life is terrible. If only we get rid of them, life will be great. Our past can falsely tell us that other people are our enemy. But Jesus says to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, forgive one another. All of those things, they're not suggestions, but Jesus is commanding us, he's calling us to it to pray for those who persecute us, to love our enemies, to forgive one another. Listen, it doesn't justify the evil actions of other people. They very well may play a key role in why we are where we are today. They may have done terrible things. It does not justify the evil actions of other people. 
But when we forgive one another, it frees us from being in bondage to them, to having our identity tied to whatever that was. If we're gonna be set free from the lie that we are our past, we need to forgive one another, both forgiving ourselves for what we have done and forgiving others just as God has forgiven us. If God has saw fit to forgive us in Christ, who are we to withhold forgiveness even from ourselves and others? And this only happens in Christ, in our union with Christ. And we are invited into this work of reconciliation. The immediate context of this is that the apostles were given the ministry of reconciliation. They are the ambassadors of Christ. That's who Paul is talking about here. But now we, as the church, are to continue that work of reconciliation, inviting people to be reconciled to God and to one another, imploring others on Christ's behalf, as Paul says, to be reconciled to God. And this is the only way to freedom. It's the only way to eternal life. If you find yourself, maybe today, being defined by your past, maybe you're like, yeah, now that I think about it, mm, yeah, that's me. That's me. If you find yourself being defined by your past, I implore you, be reconciled to God and in doing so, reconcile with other people. In doing so, what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. As Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in our union with Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' righteousness is now given to us. If you want to use a really fancy word, it's imputed to us. What's true of Jesus now becomes true of us because we are in Christ, as Paul would say. And so tonight, uh, today you might be someone who you've never stepped into relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've been antagonistic towards Christianity, or maybe you're a seeker and you're just kind of open, but you haven't really took the plunge. And here you are today going, yeah, I want to do that you realize you've been defined by your past for far too long. What I wanna do is invite you into new creation life, just as the apostle Peter said in Acts 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for, forget, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You believe the message of the gospel, turn from what you've done, and then I wanna invite you, uh, go on our website and sign up to be baptized for whenever we're gonna do baptisms next. And please, don't just keep it to yourself. Don't just keep it to yourself if you're taking that step. Tell someone, fill out a new here card. Let us know so we can walk with you on this journey of faith in Jesus together because it was never meant to be done alone. Um, can I just say as like a little bit of a, like a three second rant, there's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. There's no such thing as, oh yes, I love Jesus. Sure, sure, sure. I don't do the church though. There's no such thing as that. In our union with Christ, we enter into the body of Christ. That's why scripture calls the church the body of Christ because that's how close our union with Jesus is. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. But maybe you're here and you grew up in the church. You are or you were a Christian, but somewhere along the way you fell off. Somewhere along the way you went astray. You've believed the lie, 
that you are your past. And now you're here wanting to come back to Jesus. But a lot of times when that happens, when we fall away and we come back, it can be easy to fall into the sin of what's called scrupulosity. It's where we feel like we're such a terrible person. And even though people tell us that God forgives us, we don't actually believe it. And then we go to further and further and further lengths to try and earn God's forgiveness, to prove how sorry we are. You have almost this obsessive guilt that will never go away. To you, I wanna say that the arms of Jesus are wide open. He has forgiven you. Turn away from that lie that you are your past and return to the loving embrace of Jesus. Um, This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it connects with what we're talking about. Um, A great church father, the North African Bishop Augustine of Hippo, he lived in the uh, fourth and fifth centuries, so the 300s and the 400s AD. He was dealing with a group of Christians who were breaking away from the church You see, they refused to recognize the legitimacy of any clergy or Christian who had renounced their faith in Christ during a persecution. So this group, this offshoot group that was pulling away, they were called the Donatists. And essentially what they were doing is there was this uh, great wide persecution across the Roman Empire. And essentially the only way to not be uh, brutally imprisoned or killed as a Christian was to turn over your scriptures and renounce your faith in Christ. And a lot of clergy and other Christians did this. But then after the persecution was over, they came back and they were like, I am so sorry. I never should have done that. I realize how wrong I was. And they came back full of repentance and the Donatists said, absolutely not, see you later, you had your time. You had your time, you had your chance and you went away, see you later. And so Augustine, is making clear, and he made clear, that through repentance, when we fall away and we come back through repentance, we are richly forgiven. Um, He writes in his great work on baptism against the Donatists. Uh, It's a great title right there. Um, He writes, it has already been said that the grace of baptism can be conferred outside the Catholic communion. Here at this time, uh, Catholic meant universal. That's what the literal word means. It meant universal, not denomination. So think universal communion, not denomination. So it has already been said that the grace of baptism can be uh, conferred outside the Catholic communion, just as it can also be there retained. But no one of the Donatists themselves denies that even apostates, those who fell away, retain the grace of baptism. For when they return within the pale of the church and are converted through repentance, it is never given to them a second time. He's speaking about baptism. And so it is ruled that it never could have been lost, meaning the grace of baptism. In other words, what Augustine is saying is, you might turn your back on Jesus, but he never turns his back on you. You could have walked away. He followed you, waiting for the moment to when you would turn around. Listen, if you're someone who was a Christian, but you fell away, you don't need to start square one. It's not as if, oh, whatever that was before I fell away, I must have never been a Christian. No, no, no. Just as Augustine says, and as scripture tells us, you do not need to start at square one. You just need to come back to Jesus with humility and say, Lord, I am so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. Please forgive me. 
and then live into your identity in Christ. Or as Jesus told the woman caught in adultery in John 8, go and sin no more. The lie that you are your past and all of the enemy's lies, they're always lurking. They're always lurking. They're just waiting for a moment of weakness so they can strike. But we must stand firm. As James says in James 4, 6, and 7, but he gives us more grace, meaning God. But he, God, gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so friends, let's, let's resist the devil. If there's anything we learn from this series is that when we hold fast to God and resist the devil, when we stand firm, he will flee. And so let's resist the devil together and live into the new reality of the kingdom of God together. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we have some uh, announcements after some housekeeping. Heavenly Father, thank you just for who you are. Lord, that you are a loving God. You do not hate us. You are not waiting for us to mess up so you can hit us over the head and kick us while we're down. Thank you that in your son, Jesus, we are not defined by our past, but we are defined by who you say we are in Christ. Help us as a church to stand firm against the lies of the enemy and continually combat them with truth from scripture. Lord, help us to live into our identity in Christ as new creation people, that you may be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to contact us or find out more about our ministry, head over to our website at cornerstonechurch.info. Have a great week.